a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expanding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thomas. Today on the show, guys, we have Neil Geddes Ward. He is an artist, a filmmaker, and a paranormal speaker. He's got a book coming out pretty soon that we talk about. Uh, the dude is fascinating. We talk about some incredible stories. The guy also runs his own uh, radio show called uh, The Paranormal Peep Show, which you can find on Paranormal Radio UK. Uh, all of that stuff, guys, will be linked down in the bottom of the show notes here. So let's get to the episode, you guys. Neil Geddes Ward. Very excited to have on the show Neil Geddes Ward today. Thank you so much for your time, sir. How are you doing over there, man? Thank you very much for having me, Brandon. It's lovely to be here. Lovely yeah. to be here indeed. Thank you. This is so cool, man. Uh, you do a great show, uh, The Paranormal Peep Show, which has a cheeky title there, and I like that. That is very cool. Uh, and uh, it's an awesome show. All of the, all the ways to find you, uh, I will be linking in the show notes. But for the audience that doesn't know that much about you, if you don't mind, sir, just uh, let them know who you are. Yeah, okay. Well, as you mentioned, I do the Paranormal Peep Show, which I do with my co-host, Andy Chaplin, and we are the Brits, uh, and we work for a, 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 a station called the Paranormal UK Radio Network. So that is operated uh, partly from the United States, but also partly from the United Kingdom as well. And most of our hosts are Brits, but I, I have noticed in our list of uh, uh, presenters, there are a few Australians coming into the into the fold, and I think we've got a few uh, Americans as well. So we're coming a bit more international but certainly we get internationally out there we we, we seem to be listened to by many people around the world in in really obscure places even on tiny islands in the pacific i've noticed we've got one of these little rotating 3d globes on the website and you can scroll it around and it shows you where the listeners are and so i've had a player at this little spinny round globe and there's people in the pacific and japan and all sorts of places listening to us so it's really bizarre so that's on the radio side of things but on the other side of things um i come from a uh, broadcasting tv background and i've worked in radio as well professionally uh, and on TV programs as well. Um, we'll work for a, a few of the big name broadcasters over here in the UK. Um, but I'm also an artist. Um, so I do artwork, um, mostly what I would call a pagan and visionary, mystical, magical artwork, fantasy artwork. Um, I have a love of science fiction as well. And I'm also a paranormal researcher, I suppose you could say. Um, and that started off um, myself doing um, research into mediums uh, and even studying mediumship myself in what they call developing circles and so that's expanded into doing uh, writing for books and things and I have had a, a book published and done research for other people's books as well and contributed to those as well so yeah I've got a mixed bag and I'm a musician just to throw that into the end why of not? the thing yeah, you might as yeah. well <laughs> why as well you know I've got something else to do why not strum a bass guitar you know <laughs> you're also a mean decoupager I don't know if a lot of people knew that but your arts and crafts game is on point 
Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, I paint in oils and, and I do drawing and sketching, but my strongest point is painting in oil paints. And people say, well, why do you paint in oil paints? You know, um, surely that's what professionals use. And the thing is, professionals use oil paints. I believe it's because it's the easiest paint to use. I uh, can't get on with watercolors. I can't get on with acrylics. So I use oil paints because they've got a nice slow drying time and you can do lovely blending with it. But that's just a craft thing, you know. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay, that makes sense, though. Yeah, because people get a little turned off by the fact that, oh, well, that's what like Michelangelo used and stuff. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. then let's yeah. just use that then. There's got to be a reason for it, right? You get similar results. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, well, tell me what, what got you interested in uh, the paranormal and the, the things that you talk about on your show in general. What, what kicked that off? Ah, goes a long way back. Um, I've never done what people might term ghost hunting, where they might go to old castles or graveyards with little electronic gadgets. Never done that. Um, it's not really my scene. Um, however, I started off, my interest in it sprung up from when I was a child. And I remember saying to my mum when I was really young, can't remember, I might be about nine or ten, where was I before I was born? And she said, well, you never existed. And I thought, Hang on a minute, I must have. Even though I can't remember it, I can't imagine not existing. And I thought, I must have been somewhere. Um, so that kind of aroused my curiosity, and I had no answers at that time. Uh, but then as I got older, we started to get books uh, being given to us by neighbours and friends and relatives. And I don't know if you have the Reader's Digest. I think you do in the States, don't you? The Reader's Digest. We used to get a lot of those old copies being given to us by people and i used to see in the sort of index of what sort of stories and articles they had in there and 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 some of the articles seemed interesting it says i died on the operating table you know i thought oh what's that then so i'd read the article about someone dying literally being declared dead and they said they'd float out of their body and they'd see a light at the end of a tunnel and they'd kind of see relatives and that really got my head kind of uh, spinning in all sorts of curiosity uh, directions and coupled with that um, I would find articles on UFOs and flying saucers and things like that and I was very interested in that because I just loved Star Trek and Doctor Who as a kid and so to actually think there could be real spaceships out there coming from some galaxy or universe or planet or whatever it was aroused my curiosity as well so I started to sort of expand my reality as, as such <laughs> to coin a phrase to go off into these directions and as I got older I, I just basically um, started to find out more about mediums and what they did and looked into the side of things of flying saucers and UFOs as well so it's grown from that really. So just everything having to do with the mysterious. I mean, you're just into the mysterious, which I mean, I can completely yeah. empathize with. That's that's awesome, man. Um, well, what? So there's there's tons of stories about people who, as as children, will remember old lives. Or you'll hear these accounts where this kid lives in this town. He uh, said, "Oh, I was murdered, and um, I can take you to my body, my old body. I'm not using it anymore." So he takes him to a town over like some distance that he could never know about, that he's never been to, and goes to a tree in the middle of a field and points down and they dig down there and they find the remains of somebody that died. Like, how the hell does that happen? Yeah. That stuff to me is fascinating, man. Um, it, so have you ever heard any stories like that about people recalling past lives as a kid? Yeah, yeah. There was a, a very interesting documentary. It's an Australian one, actually. And I remember recording it on my old VHS recorder back in the early 1980s. Um, and uh, I've talked to other people about this and they do recall this documentary as well. I can't remember the title of it, but it was a very, very well-respected Australian documentary. You'll probably find it on YouTube. And uh, there was 
I think the guy that has made made the film, he, he must have interviewed about eight or nine uh, people, and they went regression uh, hypnosis, you know, regressed, and went back to previous uh, lives. And there's one lady who had never set out set foot outside Australia, and yet she was talking about her life um, in the west of England. Um, and she even talked about that um, if you went to this particular town and went to this house where she claimed she lived in the barn, there was this uh, stone that had a particular kind of pattern on the stone, uh, like on, on the ground, a flagstone, I think it was. And so they actually located this, this old village in the southwest of England, went to this old barn that was still there from the site 1600s or something, and they swept away all the rubbish and the straw. And there was this stone with the pattern that she described. And yet this lady, like you say, the tree with a body under it, she had never set foot out of Australia. And here she was describing this stone on the other side of the world. And, and they found it. Uh, and, and then you kind of sit up and think, well, how is that possible? And, and the answer they give is that it's reincarnation. So then you start to look at reincarnation and think, well, there must be something to it. And of course, it all ties up with the afterlife and the spirit world. And so, yeah, it all kind of connects the dots. It's, it's fascinating, man. I love that kind of stuff. And then you can talk to people who um, have had uh, after um, death experiences, near death experiences. Um, they actually did die, like you said, and they're declared dead. Uh, even doctors will note that they were declared physically dead. There's no brain activity because a lot of people will write this kind of stuff off or they think that they've got answers for it medically or scientifically. And I just don't think that the science has gotten to the point to where we can even meter that kind of stuff or where we can, we can look into it to where it's actually something measurable and tangible that science will actually look at. Now, there have been people that have done that, uh, but they're very, they're discounted. It's, it's still considered pseudoscience. And I just don't think we know enough about it. And that, that though is the argument for consciousness being non-localized to the body. And that's the thing, right? That's the great problem in science is consciousness. And so um, whenever you hear stories like that, it, it's fascinating to me. I love that kind of stuff. And, and your show does a great job with everything paranormal and mysterious. So what about uh, UFOs? Because they do kind of go hand in hand. Like I said, it's just all the mysterious stuff. Mm. So what, what got you into uh, UFOs? Or just kind of a stair step, slippery slope kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as I say, I, 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 of course, when I was a kid, there was not, no such thing as the internet. That was, <laughs> didn't even know how to, didn't even know what a computer was when I was a kid, you know. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I could uh, find out about stuff either came on the TV or occasionally I might find a book at the local library and, and, and take that home and, and read through it. But I remember we used to have a TV program it used to come on about 6 p.m. and it was like a, an hour long. It was called Nationwide and people in the UK. Who are around my age and older might remember that it's not on the TV anymore, but it was like a kind of current affairs program, and they would co cover stories from around the UK that might be of interest. And they even covered the, the famous cotton leaf fairies uh, at one time. That's how I first heard about those. Um, but getting back to this lady in 1954 or 55, I think it was, and she was in Staffordshire, which is in the central UK. She was a farmhouse wife, and, and they interviewed her, and she said that she had seen this flying saucer, and she she was actually in the kitchen uh, doing something and her kids were outside playing in the yard and they called him mum mum there's a flying saucer and she thought what are you on about so, and ran out and she said she looked up and above the house and it's actually tilted at an angle so that the, the occupants of the ufo could look down at her and it must have been she said just above the roof of the house so she could clearly see them she said she saw this huge flying saucer she said it was like a, a, a mexican hat 
that's the way she described it. So it had a kind of dome thing or a sort of saucer shape that expanded. And in the dome part, she said it looked like a window. And she said she saw two men. She said beautiful faces with long hair, blonde hair, looking down at her. And she said they almost had a feeling like of compassion as they looked towards her rather than, you know, being dangerous or a threat of any kind. They had a compassion that you might look on an animal that's maybe injured. You might have a compassionate feel about you. They had that to her. Um, and she said they were there for a few minutes and then and, and the kids all sort of looked up with her and then she said it just tilted and shot off and that was it and uh she and now the lady stuck to her story because i actually found an updated interview with her it was done in about 2006 or something online and she still stuck to her story and she was in her 90s by this time and she still stuck to the same story and i I'd later learned that the kind of beings that she saw in that flying saucer possibly might be what they call nordics which are these very humanoid race of uh, ETs or aliens that they think might be like higher cousins of us, if you like, of humanity, much more advanced. And the reason they're called the Nordics is because of their blonde hair. They look like Scandinavians, apparently. Yeah, and the same with the Billy Meyer case. He had the Palladians, and they looked very human-like. Now, one of yeah. my favorite theories or hypotheses about the UFO phenomena, because we really don't know what it is. You know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, they're definitely coming from other star systems. Well, we don't know that. You know, it's a possibility, and maybe some of them are. But one of the ways that um, the Nordics and the very human-looking ones, a, a possibility of how they can be explained. Have you ever heard of the theory that they're um, future humans coming back in time machines? Yeah, they've, they've, I've heard that one. They talked about that at the Rendlesham case, which is in, in the UK. Uh, and, and one of the ideas postulated there that it was a future time traveling machine. It's interesting. Interesting. I mean, whether they can be or not, I don't know. Because you wonder about all these science fiction shows where you say you can't go back and break the laws of time because it changes the whole timeline and things like that. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I don't know. But it's a very interesting hypothesis anyway. Yeah, I had a I had a gentleman on the show uh, named Dr. Michael P. Masters. He wrote that book, Identified Flying Objects, and that's and it's not his theory. A lot of people have proposed this. I know Diane Tessman, uh, Alan Butler with his uh, intervention uh, was a great book as well. But his is my favorite theory on it because he's a biological anthropologist. I mean, he looks at ancient hominids, and so he kind of deduced that okay, well, in the future we'll look like these alien greys and stuff like that. But mm. if we maybe figure out time travel before we evolve to that point as a species then that would explain some of the very human looking people that they or entities that they that have been reported exactly like in the case that you just described because that's a fascinating case i love that uh, it it's my favorite if i had to pick a favorite uh, theory about it that's probably it because i mean backwards time travel is theoretically possible um, they're now starting to understand that. And then there's all sorts of quantum things that we don't understand. Again, the pseudoscience. Uh, it's science that I think eventually we'll figure out. And even Dr. Michael P. Masters in his book says, if it is possible, we will figure it out because that's just what humans do. We just we just murder it. We go hard, right? So um, I, I think it's fascinating. That's one of my favorite ones. Uh, and it's just a fun thought experiment. And then when you start to go back into these older cases and look at it through that lens or with that possibility in mind, uh, it, it's very interesting, man. It, it sort of checks more boxes um, It because then it's just, and you know, if those entities that have spoken to human beings would say, oh, well, we come from the Pallades or we come from, you know, Zeta Reticuli or something like that. If I was a future human and didn't want the past humans to know that we figured out time travel, I'd just tell them I was from somewhere they can't go, like a star system, something they can conceptualize but not physically achieve yet, right? Mm. So I don't of, know. Of course, they could actually be telling the truth and they could be 
from those star systems that humanity has gone out there anyway, you know. So Ab- and another possibility, absolutely. Because uh, if time travel is possible, then you could just time travel in the future, go to where you're already established in other places in the cosmos, because then distance wouldn't be a barrier, right? Because now you're just traveling through time, not necessarily distance. It's it's interesting. The paradoxes will wrap your brain up, and, and I love those thought <laughs> experiments, man. There's a new thing that's just come out, actually. I caught it on the BBC uh, News this afternoon, actually on YouTube, uh, which might help, well, it helped people like you and me and other researchers look into it. And uh, I think it's one of these uh, Hadron Collider type of things they got in California. And it's it's posted three days ago on the BBC. And for them to put something like that on the BBC News, it must be fairly big stuff. Uh, And they're proposing that they might have got evidence to find that there's a fifth force of something, you know, like with gravity and we've got blah, blah, blah forces. But this is a fifth force that they haven't quite understood. Apparently, astronomers, astrophysicists, scientists have seen things happening in the universe and they can't understand why they're happening and 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 they put forward theories and now with this new hadron collider they found these extra particles or something that are doing things they weren't expecting and the science of it is quite baffling but they suspect that this might explain why these certain things are happening in the universe and they're thinking it could be a new force of power that they haven't actually officially discovered yet but then i'm thinking beyond that does that then connect to time travel spirit worlds etc etc the list goes on so they might actually discover things like the spirit world uh, officially like the BBC official, as it were, um, uh, you know, accidentally, indirectly. Um, although, you know, my research suggests that um, certainly going back into the past, it's been suppressed, but there are many scientists that have discovered that, you know, there is life after death and the whole thing has been suppressed and pulled down a little bit. Yeah, there's definitely something going on. We know that for sure. Uh, I think a lot of uh of it is wrapped up in woo-woo, and that's why people won't pay attention to it. You know, we're tribal creatures. We want to fit in. Uh, But I think that also that with the advent of new technology that's able to glean into this new scientific understandings, because that's the way it's going to have to be accepted, right? It won't be the reports from, what, millions of people that are claiming to be (laughs) mediums and contactees and have seen extraordinary things that are just so mysterious that we don't understand them. And that's just simply it. We just don't understand it yet. That's it. But there's definitely yeah. something going on. And I think you can see this acknowledgement of the out there with uh, all the things happening right now with the disclosure movement, with the U.S. government coming out, with uh, the Pentagon reports coming out. You could tell that we're starting as a society or as a consciousness globally to kind of move forward to not accept these ideas, but just to look into them more seriously, which I think is great, man. It's a it's an awesome time to be alive. Because, yeah, there's so much out there that we don't understand, and the understanding of which could change everything, right? So uh, what I, I know that you, you wrote an awesome book. So what is tell us about that. Well, it's still being written, if it's the one that I think you're referring yeah, to, you're which told- is Encounters with Fairies, Ghosts, and Spirits. Is yes, that the one? I want to talk yeah. to you about this. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, um, that was actually a sidestep from the artwork, because uh, how that came about is that I would take my artwork to various uh, events and shows and conferences around the UK um, where you'd get speakers talking on various subjects. And and I'd have to pay uh, a booth fee, I think you'd call it, but we'd call it or a vendor's fee, but I'd have to pay a stall fee. It's the same thing, uh, you know. And so I would negotiate with these people and say, look, if I tell you a few stories and you need a speaker, right, you know, um, I've got a lot of research that I've been interested in. How about if I told a few stories uh, and, and that 
in exchange for a free stall. And they say, yeah, yeah, it'd be fine. So, you know, they put me up in a hotel. I'd get my expenses paid, a free meal. So I did quite well out of it. I was literally singing for my supper. I'd sell some of the artwork, which was which was lovely. Uh, and so then I'd get get there and I'd, I'd also have a free advert because I'd get up on the stage and say, come and see my stall. And now I'm going to tell you about ghosts and fairies and spirits. And, and so that's how it came along. And what happened is that I talk for about an hour about the various researches and experiences that I had had and with people that I had met. And then, of course, after every event, these people would then come up to my store and say, oh, I like your talk. Can I tell you about my story? So after a while, it started to snowball and I started to get more and more and more stories. And I thought after about 10 years, I've got to put this down into a book because there's so much here. So this is where the book was born. The genesis of it was started a few years ago. And I thought, okay, I'm going to now crack on with it. And then we started lockdown and I thought, right, I'm going to crack on with it even more. So, uh, you know, I've been writing it. I'm up to chapter 17, which is probably about the last chapter, 17 or 18 now, where I'm starting to talk about the science of it. But the whole book goes through um, encounters with fairies, uh, goes through uh, mediumship and how that works, uh, people's sightings of ghosts and what possibly ghosts are right through uh, to um, mediums of manifested spirits um, in Brazil that seem to float up into the air or mediums that have disappeared and appeared in other locations in Brazil. I'll get to Brazil later. If you remind me about Brazil, because I've got an interesting hypothesis of why that might happen in Brazil in particular, because there's lots of cases that seem to come from Brazil in the sense of UFOs and um, uh, mediumship and spirit operations and things like that, more so than any other part of the planet. It. And I've suddenly kind of hit upon a, a, a speculative theory or hypothesis that might possibly be connected to something that we've already got in existence, but I'll come to that later. Don't you dare tell me it's swamp gas. No, <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just swamp gas, guys. Flock of geese. It's, uh, you didn't see anything. Don't worry about it. It's ridiculous. Okay, my apologies. Yeah, so, I mean, I can tell you some of the stories that I've got in there, if that's of interest to your listeners and viewers. Um, you beat me to it. That's what I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'll, I might as well start off with a fairy thing, uh, as that's the first part of the book. Um, for part of the research, I looked and found a film online, which you can yourself find this film online. It's very interesting. It's called The Fairy Faith by a Canadian filmmaker called John Walker. He must have made it about 20 years ago now. And he went to various parts of the UK, Scotland, Ireland, possibly Wales, uh, and also parts of Canada, obviously, because that's his home country. And he interviewed various people that claim to have encounters with the wee folk or the small people, uh, depending on where, part, where, where you come from, you call them different names. And um, there was one guy that he met who was, uh, I think he was actually from Glasgow in Scotland, but he'd gone on holiday to sort of uh, Ireland, Southern Ireland. And he was at this place called the Fairy Fort or the Fairy hill if, if uh, memory serves me right and he heard this mysterious weird music which has often been associated with these fairy signs and you can't actually pinpoint where this music's coming from but you just know it's around you and he heard this weird music and he was like backpacking there and he was a normal down-to-earth kind of glaswegian builder by trade you know who wouldn't take any nonsense his name was steve odell and uh, he said that whilst he Listen to this weird fairy music. It, it just stopped raining and the clouds were parting over the valley and the sun was coming out. And he saw this perfect rainbow forming over the valley and he thought, what an absolutely stunning view. Isn't this absolutely magical and lovely? And whilst he was looking at it, he said there was this weird movement in his peripheral vision 
down there somewhere out, out of the field of his normal vision he could see something down below him and this thing was moving around it annoyed him so much that he just had to take his gaze off the lovely view ahead of him and look down to see what it was and he said that there was this woman who was probably about that high maybe a, a couple of feet i might not be quite accurate with the, the size of them but she had brown leathery looking skin and a sort of a brown leathery pointy hat she looked really old and ugly and she and he said that she had what he he thought looked like sheep shears old style sheep shears like a great big pair of iron scissors or something or, or rusty scissors of some sort and 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 she was a cutting this is where it gets weird cutting around the sole of his shoe and he said where his shadow extended there was the male equivalent of this being and this is where it gets freaky expanding reality freaky rolling up his shadow like a roll of paper and he said he didn't know what to think because he's seen these beings doing something that doesn't it defies reality and physics as we understand it and he didn't know what to say and he just went oi like that and he said that they looked at each other as if to say oh my god he's seen us and he said they went and just vanished like that and he said i dread to think if i'd not seen them what would have happened to me what would have happened i mean were they taking part of his soul or his energy but rolling up a shadow like peter pan it, it literally defies physics doesn't it yeah i i would say so because it doesn't make any sense but it's Intellectually, it doesn't make any sense, but it's a fascinating story, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, and this is a Glaswegian builder doing it. It's not some pot-smoking hippie. Right, um, right. So it's not the sort of guy you think, and first of all, if you're going to make up a story, this story is too weird to make up. It is. Do you know? Yes. It, it's very, like, super creative. <laughs> so so I, I tackled that one uh, at the beginning, and... Um, that led me on to a, a, a meeting once on an aeroplane. I was actually flying to Spain from Scotland. I'd, I'd flown down from Scotland down to London. I was catching a connecting flight then down to Spain with my family. And my son was young at the time and he was sitting next to me on the right looking out the window. And I was at the front of the plane and the last passenger to get on this plane going to Spain was this dark skinned gentleman. Now the whole plane was full of Spaniards flying back to Spain. So I just assumed he was another Spanish guy. But we started talking and he spoke in a very English accent and I thought oh he's not Spanish I said where are you from then and he said oh I'm from um, what you would call Iran he said I prefer to call it Persia but he says I live in London I said oh what you're going on holiday to Spain then and he says oh no no I said I'm an architect and I got to go out there just to check on the progress of the projects that I've got going out there sort of thing so I said oh right so he said what do you do and I said well I'm an artist and I do fairy artwork and drawings and things and I said at the time I lived in the Orkney Islands which is a group of islands off the north coast of Scotland and we had a gallery there an art gallery and it's called the Fairy Museum uh, Orkney Fairy Museum and Gallery uh, with my artwork and some local legends of fairies up there so I was showing him some drawings on my camera that I photographed and said oh this is the kind of thing I do etc etc and then i thought oh i'll tell him that weird story which i've just related to you with steve odell and the strange shadow people rolling up his shadow like paper and i thought that's a freaky one and he then opened up a little bit he said mm, yeah and i said i said there's I said, science is just getting its hand on the door handle of this new reality, but we haven't quite opened the door yet, but we've got a hand on the door handle. And he says, yeah, I agree with you. We've just get in there as like uh, this, this theory of this uh, fifth kind of force that we're discovering now. And um, he said, I'll tell you a story with something that happened to me, uh, which 
I won't really tell other people kind of thing, but I'll tell you as, as you're the kind of guy that might be willing to listen to it and, and understand it. And I almost got the impression that this guy probably held on to this story for a long, long time and not told many people about it. Um, Cause he perhaps didn't mix in those kind of circles, being an architect and intellectuals and that sort of stuff. So he said that when he was a younger man, he was conscripted into the Iranian army and he must have been about 18 or 19, something like that. And he said that he was patrolling the streets in Iran with an army colleague one night. And he said a sandstorm blew up one night, uh, which was common in those parts. And uh, he said they sought shelter in a local mosque. And so they went into the mosque. And as is the custom in mosques, they took off their shoes. So they took off their shoes. And I'll call this guy Hussein. He didn't want me to reveal his real name because I actually used it in a book. Um I don't know what his real name was, Hussein or something, um, Hussein Saddam, something. I, I don't know. But, but anyway, um, he said his friend went to sleep beside him. He said, you go to sleep and I'll keep a lookout. And after an hour, I'll wake you up and then it'd be my turn to sleep. And that was the arrangement they were going to have through the night. So he said his friend went to sleep and Hussein had the gun and he just kept sitting there against the back of this wall of this mosque, sitting next to his buddy. And he said, no matter how hard he tried to stay awake, he couldn't help it. He kept nodding off to sleep and he'd wake up and go, oh, oh, I must stay awake. I must stay awake. He said this happened three times that he nodded off and kept waking up. And then on the third time he woke up, he said he suddenly saw a woman crouching down, looking at his feet. And next to the woman was a girl crouching down, looking at his army friend's feet. And the girl appeared to be about 11, 12 years of age, something like that. And they were both staring intently at their feet. Remember, because they didn't have shoes on. They were just looking at their feet. And he thought, where the hell did she come from? I didn't hear any noise where, you know, did they come through the door while I was asleep? He just didn't know what to think. So he said that whilst they were staring at his feet, he said he started to try and wake up his friend by pressing his elbow onto his friend's chest to try and stir him. He said no matter how hard he pressed on his chest, his friend wasn't waking up. So Hussein said, I decided that I didn't like this and I was going to make a run for it even though he was the guy with the gun and he was wrapping the strap of the gun around his arm. So the gun wouldn't swing as he ran away. <laughs> it's a strange thing. You're the guy with the gun, but you're going to run away from two people that are unarmed. It's, it's strange, but there we go. And he said that as he was doing that, it must've caught the attention of this lady that was looking at his feet and said that she looked up and looked him directly in the eye. And he said, as soon as I made eye contact with this woman, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that she was not from this world. He said it something just clicked in his soul that I knew she wasn't from this world. And he said she stood up and the young girl with her stood up. And he said they just turned and walked away. And he said as they walked away, he said he noticed they had cloven hooved feet and they just vanished into the wall of the mosque. And when he told me that, a shiver went up and down my spine. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> freaky or what but then you think about it you think oh that's why they were staring at his feet yes because to them their feet were the odd ones yes you see yeah absolutely damn so man. then yeah then you, then you start to do a, a few sort of somersaults in your brain thinking okay let's think about this more and then you start to think of there's legends mm -hmm. of people with centaurs you know half man half beast uh you know the, the lion the witch in the wardrobe has centaurs or fawn people half fawn and like pan. that kind of thing yeah. yeah yeah pan exactly so maybe that's where those legends come from you see yeah 
I, I think that there's some truth in all of this stuff. Now, the other interesting part to legends like this is maybe they're, they were created by us. You know, it's a psychosemantic kind of a thing. And so you're, are you familiar with the concept of tulpas? Yes, the thought forms, yeah. Yeah, and so maybe if you're told that something exists, you can manifest it even co-collectively, right? Maybe because we see these movies with fairies depicted in it, like your fern gullies and stuff like that, maybe we create these things. Or maybe because somebody just made up a story, uh, it manifests in that way. Um, I I tend to think, though, that there's some truth to this kind of stuff, that either either we are manifesting it, which we have the power to do, which is fascinating, alone, uh, or they're actually real and it is something outside of our scope of reality. Now, I want to come back to something that you said about his periphery. Uh, the, the gentleman in the first story that you were talking about. Um, Steve O'Dell, the builder. Steve O'Dell, yes, thank you. Uh, there, There's a, a thought about that the paranormal exists just outside of what you can, what you focus on intently with your gaze, right? Or with your um, mm. observation. And so that's where the shadow people come in. And then there's that stuff that happens just outside of it. And the, the thought on it is because you're not focused on it and you're not looking directly at it. And so even when you shift your gaze and look somewhere else, you'll see something kind of blink out. And it was there all along. It's an interesting theory. I don't know if you've if you've heard of that. I have many many years ago. I remember attending this uh, psychic fair, and this guy was doing a talk there, and he spoke about it, saying that uh, the edge of your vision, you can see finer frequencies, and so you see the movement, and then you look, and it's gone because you've turned into the normal everyday frequencies. You see. Yeah. Although I can understand that to a certain extent, that might work for people that are perhaps not psychically as tuned as say mediums, because maybe that's where their psychic elements are and they can see something but this steve odell just saw the whole thing you yeah know, with his normal vision uh, and it also accounts for uh, there's another guy that's um uh similar guy down-to-earth builder guy he was actually an apprentice plumber in in york which is the north of england uh york is famous in england because it's it heralds where the uh, vikings settled um in the earlier part of the, the, the sort of millennium of 2000 years ago, maybe. Um, but also Romans existed there. And it was this, um, this, this apprentice plumber, I think in the 1953 or 54, um, God, his name escapes me now. Um, Harry Martindale, that's it. Harry Martindale, his name was, and he's about 18 or 19. And he was engaged with some other plumbers to go to this house called the Chancellor's House, which is an old uh, sort of 18th century building, large kind of building that happened to be built on an old Roman road just outside of York. Now, they had to kind of update it and put new pipes and central heating in and things like that. So Harry Martindale was told to go down to this cellar of this building and uh, start to dig holes through the wall with drills and things and pull pipes through. And he was there like five hours. Now he had to sort of stand on a ladder and he found a trench in this cellar, uh, which he didn't know was actually where archeologists had been digging maybe the previous year or something and found what they thought was a Roman road in there. So they left it there maybe to come back and do more work on it at a later time. He had no idea that that was a Roman road, but he put his ladder into this trench because it gave it more support so that when he went up the wall, he wouldn't slide off it. So he'd been there for about five hours drilling holes and things like that. And he heard this weird music and it's only one note, like a sound of, and he thought, what's that radio song? It's a bloody awful tune on the radio that someone's playing. 
And it just kept playing. But the thing is, it kept getting louder and louder and louder. So he thought, well, where's it coming from? And it appeared to be coming from the wall that he was actually leaning against. And he said he looked down and suddenly out of this wall came two Roman centurions or soldiers literally marching through. And then he saw a horse come through with another Roman soldier sitting on the horse. And he saw a whole load of Roman soldiers. And of course, this frightened the hell out of him, completely shocked. He sort of went like that and fell back off his ladder. And so he just scurried into the corner of the cellar and hid from them, hoping that they wouldn't see him. And he said that he could see them absolutely in 3D, crystal clear. But he says where they came through the wall, he said he could only see them from the knees upwards. But when they got to this trench, which had been excavated, their legs, their lower legs suddenly appeared and he could see the sandals they were wearing. And he said that he could even see that they had unshaven, they were unkempt. He could even hear them talking in some strange language, possibly Latin, maybe. I, I don't know. That's my guess anyway. But he described them not in the way that you'd expect your Charlton Heston Roman soldiers to appear in the Hollywood style. He said they had small round shields. They had green tunics. Now, the Romans that we perhaps all know in history have red tunics and long rectangular shields. So he was deviating from the known history, but that's important because he knows nothing about history himself, but this is how he was describing them. And he said he described the horse as having like a cart horse type flanks on its on its feet. So it wasn't your nice kind of pristine horse. It was uh, it was a uh, like really fluffy kind of flanks around the hooves. And uh, he said that where that horn noise came from, the great big horn noise that he thought was a radio, was this guy carrying a great big blowing horn that was heralding the arrival of this legion of Roman soldiers. Now I say a legion, it's probably only about 20 of them or something. They appeared to take no notes of them at all. Um, they appeared to be splattered in mud as well. Now this was in November, 1953, if my memory serves me correctly. And as soon as they passed away and the sound died away and they went through the other wall and vanished, he ran up the stairs in absolute fright. And there was like a, a guy that had obviously worked at this, uh, this place. And he said, Oh, you look like you've seen the Roman soldiers, my lad. So, They've been seen by other people. And Harry Martindale decided that that was it. He was not going back to that job. But he'd only been in the job as an apprentice for a few days, and he wasn't going to go back there. Now, later on, maybe about five or six years later, there was a new caretaker of this um, historic building. It was a lady with her dogs. And she had sighted these same Roman soldiers. It was her job to go around looking and checking up all the rooms of the building at night. And her dogs ran down these cellar stairs and were barking. And she looked down the stairs and she could see the Roman soldiers. But this time she saw many horses coming through. Again, they were covered in mud. Uh, and this would be in a February 1957, in the winter of 1957, but February time. Now, remember, Harry Martindale saw his in November. Again, that would be a winter time in 1953. And he sighted them covered in mud. And this lady described them covered in mud, but it wasn't exactly the same scene. Still the same Roman soldiers, possibly, with the same kind of outfits and things. But they were all riding horses, but they were knackered. So they actually land across their horses as if like almost falling asleep and the, and the horses were leading them home sort of thing. And then another time she saw them maybe uh, th two months later that they were leading the horses this time. But again, loads of horses, not, not just one horse as Harry Martindale has seen. So that led me to think that they'd all seen them in the winter of their corresponding year. So in 1957, this lady was seeing them her winter. And the reason I suspect it was their winter in the Roman times because they were covered in mud.
and you'd only get mud in the winter generally where they're splattered walking on you know muddy roads and things if it was the summertime they would not really have mud on them so rather than ghosts were uh, and people talk about the stone tape theory where these ghosts appear and, and they're like recorded in the atmosphere or in the building somewhere and you're like pressing play somehow and watching this video recording of a ghost unfold I suspect that it could be almost like your time travel idea, but they're peering through time because they're seeing them perhaps on the same kind of season uh, from their time back to the past. I.e., They're in their winter and they're looking at the winter of 2000 years ago uh, and they're looking at the Roman muddy soldiers. And again, these Roman muddy soldiers are not actually aware of the people looking at them. They're, they're, they're being spotted by us, but but we they can't see us. Um, very interesting kind of sight uh, in that one. Very interesting case, the Harry Martindale case. It's a fascinating concept. And I remember hearing a story about two teachers that were on tour in France somewhere and they actually walk are walking through the palace. I'm sure you've heard this. And then they look down and they, well, I think they walked through a door, a threshold or something. I can't remember the specifics, but you understand. And then Marie Antoinette was sitting there and she was being mm. painted or something like that. And they were just like, what the hell? And yeah, she couldn't see them. And it's an interesting time slip kind of a thing. And then you hear um, places where great battles have been fought. I know we have Gettysburg out here in the States from the Civil War, and there's all these ghost uh, accounts, and it's like on a loop, like you said. Yeah. It is interesting that I love the concept even more that it's not like a repeating loop, but that you're able to glimpse into the past of that time when you're viewing it from your time. So just like you said, in November, it was a totally different scene than in February. But did she describe like the same, the green, the shields, everything? Yeah, that's the important thing that, that, you know, his his account was initially dismissed, but it wasn't until um, some years later, I can't remember the time frame of when, when they looked into it, but some historians actually looked at it and realized that Harry Martindale and this lady in their descriptions of the uniforms were actually describing Roman auxiliary soldiers. So when the main Roman Empire left Britain and went back to Italy, they left the small units. Yeah. Uh, and so this was like, uh, that's this is why they had the green uniforms. They weren't the main Roman army. And this is why they had the round shields. And he also described them having um, little daggers rather than great long Roman uh, swords that come in holsters. So he didn't know any of that because remember when he put his ladder in the trench, he don't he didn't even have an idea that it was a Roman road. He just saw it as a trench to put his ladder in. So he had no knowledge of history, which is you know. And yet here he was describing accurately something that the historians had to look into and found to be true later on. So that kind of backs up his story. God, this is cool. I love this man. Um, okay, well uh, bring us back to Brazil. Oh, yeah, Brazil. Now, I've been looking into, uh, I'm at the, this is where in the tail end of my book, I'm, I'm looking at cases from Brazil. Uh, and I've always noticed this, and I never realized why. There always seems to be a lot of cases of psychic healers in Brazil, uh, people that do these psychic operations. They allege that they can dip into your body and do an operation and pull out bad bits and you know, with no surgery, no knives, and that they just do it with their bare hands. It sounds bizarre. Some of it is alluded to being fakery. Maybe that's the case. I haven't really looked into that side too deeply, but there are things that I hear about. Uh, but there's this case of uh, this famous uh, Martinelli, I think his name is, this famous medium who's been investigated by the president of Brazil, and they set up a committee to investigate him, and he was manifesting spirits in broad daylight. So, you know, you couldn't be accused of, of, of uh, say, doing it in a dark seance room and, you know, someone's doing it in the dark secretly, putting a lever or 
something on a string. This was in broad daylight for everybody to see. And people that had died that were well known, like a priest had died and he appeared in his full regalia as a priest. And he was having his you know, pulse taken by doctors and being measured and sticking out his tongue and everything. And he'd speak there for 10 minutes and he'd say who he was. And then he'd rise up in the air and he would disappear. Feet first, then legs, then his torso. So that only the head was left and that would disappear. And this was happening a lot with this guy. They, you know, like... Uh, doctors that had died local town doctors that had died but were, were appearing in these seances uh, and they 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 tested this guy for a long long time and and so many manifestations are happening now i thought this is different from the seances that you have in other parts of the world where they're in a dark room where they have a seance cabinet and you might have an infrared light because we're told that the spirits can't manifest in normal daylight and so you have this Infrared light, which is considered to be less harmful, uh, and this ectoplasm, this mysterious stuff that comes out of the mediums, then forms into a spirit. And if you suddenly drew the curtains and natural daylight would flood in, that would cause this ectoplasm to sort of go back into the medium and can harm them and, and injure them, as in the case of uh, the wartime medium, Helen Duncan, who uh, was, was bringing back dead sailors from ships that had been sunk in World War II. That happened to her. Now, this Brazilian case and other Brazilian cases is marked differently because it was happening broad daylight. And I thought, well, how can that be? You know, I'm told that this can only happen in the darkness of a seance room. But there's this thing called the Atlantic anomaly. And that's to do with the Van Allen radiation belts. You might have heard of them. Now, in the late 50s, Dr. Uh, Van Allen in America uh, was kind of experimenting and he discovered with sending up small rockets with Geiger counters that there was two bands of radiation above the Earth. Uh, and this is where the, you know, the moon landings are, are suspicious. Did they really happen? How could they travel through the Van Allen radiation belts where these charged particles are trapped of uh, radiation that come from the sun but because we have like um, uh, a, a magnetic field on our earth is that uh, it's a bit like the iron filings on a magnet you trap the iron filings in a sort of circular pattern around a magnet on paper and, and all these uh, charged particles of radiation are trapped uh, in these belts with our own magnetic field. So in essentially, we're like a giant big bar magnet on the Earth. And the iron filings are, is this magnetic field. So there are parts of it where it's not perfect. There's, there's areas uh, on the North Pole and the South Pole where there is no radiation belt. And if you could launch a rocket from the North Pole, it could go straight up from the North Pole without going through the Van Allen radiation belts. Um, but the problem with that is, is the temperature is so cold up there, it, it causes a problem to the, the rocket's uh, engines and things. You know, think of like the space shuttle with the uh, O-rings exploding and things like that on the shuttle because it's such sub-zero temperatures. That's the kind of problems you have there. But there's also another part where the radiation belts actually leak down over the South Atlantic and across Brazil. Now, Brazil covers a large part of the South America and it's known as the Atlantic Anomaly and it comes down to about just 200 feet above the uh, you know, surface of Brazil and, and the South Atlantic. Um, whereas normally the radiation belts, uh, you don't encounter them until at least sort of a, a thousand miles up and beyond that, they stretch like 20,000 miles. Um, they expand and contract, so you can't say it's an absolute nth degree that it is a thousand miles up sometimes it might be 600 miles but this this atlantic anomaly is where uh, the radiation dips down lower so i was interviewing a guy uh, a couple of months ago who said his wife manifested in his bed right next to him she'd been dead 
technically for seven years and yet she materialized in his bed it was in a dark room in his bedroom he didn't have a light on but he said he could feel her body he felt her legs he felt her stomach and he said he knew it was his wife you know he knew her he was married to her for four years he knew it was her and she was there and then bang she disappeared but he said in his mind he could see all these sparks and wondrous almost like a light show going on in his mind and he said he looked into it and he found that at that moment that she had appeared there was a great big mass solar flare from the sun and that got me thinking i'm thinking okay um could that so he wondered if that they were tapping into the energy of the sun the solar flare to somehow manifest themselves and it's like riding in on the surf you know for surfers they come on a certain way that's big and they can come in you know with a bit of a show and he wondered if it was the same kind of thing so that's where it led me to postulate the idea that perhaps the radiation coming down from the sun into brazil is lending some sort of energy that these spirits can then manifest in the daytime rather than nighttime uh, as we have like in in traditional victorian sciences or modern day sciences where we have to shut the windows and darken out everything to protect one from the daylight it seems that the energy is so much more stronger with these charged particles coming down over brazil that maybe they can use that in some way to amplify their presence here i don't know it's just a hypothetical up in the air i don't know just an idea Damn, that's fascinating, man. That is so interesting. Okay. Uh, so he's able to just do this on command because the energy is there all the time. Now, the solar flare thing happened to be pretty, um, I, I don't want to say coincidental, but it wasn't intentional, right? And it just happened to happen when that solar flare occurred. But this gentleman is able to tap into the energy and just call him on at will. Can he call specific people? Yeah. Now, this 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 happened in the 1920s. So this guy's now gone himself uh, and all the people investigating have gone on. Uh, but it's recording in, in various books in Brazil, in Portuguese, I'd imagine. But there must be various translations that exist. So again, I've got to track that down. But um, yeah, yeah. Apparently they, they did something like uh, so many different experiments in different areas. So they would do like, say, 50 to 100 physical seances that's physical senses is where spirits materialize in the room or in broad daylight i mean one was at a railway station or something if i if i recollect correctly um and then uh they did another so many experiments where it was automatic writing that's where spirit would take over the hand of the medium and write with their own handwriting using a pen and then there were clairvoyant reasons, which is your everyday John Edwards type of mediumship where, you know, he would like to say, I'm coming to you, madam, and I feel your father and his name is Jonathan and blah, 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 that kind of stuff, um, which is the more common mediumship, which doesn't require daylight or night. You literally just can tune in and, and do a reading like that on someone. But um, some of the mediumship uh, tests were, were failures. Uh, and it, it's the same sort of thing. You, you know, you, you can do a test and do... 10 experiments and two would be failures and, and conditions weren't right for whatever reason it failed they never actually listed why it failed maybe they didn't know why it failed but a good 80 percent of the time these manifestations were successful of course it's not just the power of the medium it requires on the spirits manifesting to also be successful their side because it's a joint experiment and providing it both works on both sides then you're going to get something tangible so sometimes it fails on their side and sometimes it's the weather conditions this side i mean i remember reading uh in jane robert seth books i don't know if you're familiar with the seth, yeah, seth speaks yeah seth speaks exactly he said in one of his books that it was uh, more difficult for him to come through and manifest 
to Jane and, and Rob, her husband, when there were storms in the atmosphere. So again, that kind of thought got me thinking about, well, atmospherics seems to play some part in the production of this phenomena. So when there's a lot of electrical activity, it, it could be like a Faraday cage type of thing and, and block certain psychic phenomena out to a certain extent. But uh, maybe on the charged particles idea of, of radiation or whatever it is, solar flares, maybe there's some sort of a battery boost that gives them that amplification of their signal to come through i don't know but it's, it's an interesting idea it, it is an interesting idea and it reminds me of a story that i heard about a guy uh who was this frat guy there was an old house on campus and uh they used to dare each other to stay in this house right because it was allegedly haunted and so this guy said okay i'll do it and he slept in the house well there was a big storm that night and that's an important part of the story probably uh is and so he's sitting there and laying on this old couch or this old area of this home and he could see up the stairs and what's interesting is there's a wall at the top of the stairs and then it turned well some a man came through the wall walked down the stairs looked right at him and then said what are you doing kind of you know or acknowledged his existence and then uh turned around and walked right back up the stairs and went through the wall now what's interesting is later on um and this, this freaked this dude out of course he, he shagged ass he wouldn't have any of it uh he then went and told the librarian he just wanted to look up some things about the house the librarian happened to be the granddaughter of the previous owner of the house. And she said, come back tomorrow. I've got some interesting things for you. She brought her grandfather's diary back and her grandfather had written down. I saw a ghost on the couch one night. And so he could see the future guy that was going to be there later. Now, what's interesting about the wall is that used to be an opening that was walled up later. That used to be the grandfather's bedroom. And so he would not be in his time walking through a wall. When his time was there, the grandfather, it was an opening. So, of course, he would just walked right through it, no problem, descended down the stairs. But the atmosphere does seem to play a part in that. That's just one of the coolest stories, man. And then the fact, the serendipity of it about his granddaughter having to work at the library where this guy went to go seek more knowledge of it. And, and the fact that the grandfather had written in his diary years and years and years ago about the vision of this human that he called a ghost but was really just the guy the frat guy in the future it's awesome <laughs> it's clever that reminds me actually an interesting again i've got it in my book um a guy that i used to be in a psychic developing circle with and this is why i believe mediumship is real because i've been in psychic developing circles myself so i know that you can get results um a guy there um i can't remember his name now but um I'll say his name's George Smith, just for argument's sake, okay? A pseudonym of George Smith. Now, this George Smith, um, he told me that he'd gone on holiday. He'd just literally got back from holiday, possibly in Spain, one of those Mediterranean countries. And I'll say it's Spain because I can't remember exactly where it was. But he said he got a phone call uh, from the hotel uh, like a few days after he'd got back. Now, he, the reason he got a phone call, I'll backtrack a little bit. He said that whilst he was on holiday in the hotel, he was like, 10 stories up because it's one of those great big tall hotels looking down over the pool. He said that he woke up in the night and he said he saw this man come into the room in a nice smart tuxedo suit type of thing. He walked across the room and then he went through to the balcony and appeared to fall off the balcony or jump off the balcony. He wasn't sure. And he thought, bloody hell, you know, I've just seen a ghost or something. So he'd gone down to uh, the reception area like the day he was checking out and he said, has anyone um, ever died there or something? And they said, no, 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 it's, it's all fine. Nothing ever happened there. And he thought, well, that's really 
weird because I've just seen this guy sort of walk across in the night and fall off the balcony. So he gets back to the UK and, and about a week later, he suddenly gets a phone call from the hotel saying, hello, is that Mr. George Smith? And he goes, yeah, well, we've, we've um, got some confusion here. It's that um, we, we want to make sure, have you got all your luggage and, and everything like that? And, and, and everything's okay. And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all fine. It's nothing wrong at all. And he says, why is that? And they said, oh, it's okay. It's just that um, we had another guest that stayed after you and unfortunately, he's died. Uh, and apparently, um, he had walked across drunk uh, after coming up from the bar or something uh, in his tuxedo suit and went out to look at the view, presumably, and stumbled and fell off the balcony, uh, like, you know, a week and a half after he had seen him. But the weird thing is that he was also called George Smith as well. Why? And so this is why the hotel were ringing up because they had to send the luggage of this George Smith deceased back to the UK. And they'd obviously got the numbers muddled up on their itinerary of who's who and were kind of checking where to send the luggage to. And, and so he had seen a future death occurring and it happened to have the same name as him. Isn't that strange? God. Yeah, <laughs> it is strange, but fascinating, man. This is awesome. Damn, this yeah. is cool. Uh, well, what it, I wanted to ask you what your favorite, I mean, I don't, this is a hard segue, but I, your, your favorite story about a fae folk type of a thing, like an old thing that was then rediscovered or reanimated, and now we still continue to see it. Um, just like the gnomes and fairies, did you have any others, um, the cloven hoof creatures as well? Mm. Well, there is an interesting story. Uh, it's probably not well known, uh, and it's not well known to the society as such, but certainly people that might watch the Fairy Faith movie that I talked about earlier from uh, John, John Walker. Walker. Yeah. Yeah. That's in there as well. And that's a very interesting story because it's, again, this Canadian lady. She almost looks like she could be kind of Native American Indian descent, maybe. I can't remember her name. I actually checked her out on Facebook. I tried to find her to see if this woman still exists, and she still does. I didn't contact her or anything, but I actually pondered the idea of just thinking I could maybe ask her a few questions about it. I didn't want to intrude on her privacy, but I know she went public with her story anyway, and I thought I've got enough information to go with, I think. But what happened was with there is that uh, – this would be about the mid 1970s. And she said that she would take her kids to this favorite lake in Canada and they would paddle in the, the shore of the lake, the little kids. I think she had three of them. Uh, and uh, they would have a little picnic, you know, afternoon picnic. And they might do that once a month or something. And she said that on one particular occasion, she was holding her little kids' hands as they were paddling in the water. And again, this woman could hear this strange ethereal music, singing, sort of weird music. And it gave her a shiver up her spine and she didn't like the feel of it. And she instinctively felt protective like a mother would do and thought, I've got to get out of here. So she said to her little kids, we got to go, we got to go. And the little kids going, why, why? And she just said, get in the car in a kind of uh, anger sort of thing. And her older daughter's with her and she couldn't understand why they had to get in the car. And then she just piled them all in the car and this music was getting louder, she said. And she said to her, her eldest daughter, now what they did in the film, they took the mother, this lady relating the story, and her daughter, who was now growing up, back to this location where this happened by this lake. And the mother at the time, back in 1974, said to her then that young daughter, don't look out of the window. But then the girl who is now growing up, she says, I remember my mum saying, don't look out the window. 
but of course I had to. <laughs> and she said she peered out the window and she said up this pathway, a clearing in the pathway of the woods, she said she saw these small dancing beings coming out of the woods and they're all linked hands and they were dancing like in a circle dancing she says and another one came in the woods and joined them and then joined their hands and they were singing this weird song and coming down the path towards them where they would have been where their picnic was and they were just driving away uh, and just got out of there in the nick of time now what would have happened to them i mean you hear these legends of don't go with fairies you, you won't come back for seven years or something like that and crazy stuff like that but again this this is a woman and her kids had seen them so it's again they're not pot smoking they were out on a picnic everyday folk seeing extraordinary things it's fascinating that's incredible now what about the fairies why don't you go with fairies fairies in the same sense well there, there's fairies that, i mean we talked about these small beings and that and some people might regard them as fairies now there's a very victorian idea of fairies where you got these wings and they're called wing sylphs now the victorians painted lots of things with wings so they paint angels with wings because they defied gravity so to speak so in their mind they had to explain how they could defy gravity and so they would put these bird wings on them or insect wings on them and things like that and it looked kind of cute i suppose pictorially but i don't think that's the case because remember i've just mentioned about the cases in brazil where these spirits are raising up and levitating in the air with no wings at all so i suspect these beings can levitate but they don't require wings and i think that uh uh so we, we we've got a bit of a tinkerbell idea of what fairies are but from the people that I've had conversations with uh, and certainly the books I've read is they're not to be messed with you know they might be okay but you don't mess with them and and uh, you have to kind of respect them and 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 different countries have their own ways of tackling them I mean uh, fairies uh, or or those kind of associated beings a bit like kryptonite is to superman you can perhaps stop fairies or, or hamper their progress if you have a bar of iron for some reason why iron i don't know but maybe it's like magnets and you know getting back to magnetic fields or something i don't know but um yeah the, the, there are fairy stories of, of people being visited by them there i mean there's a case of the cottonly fairies which is a well-known thing from england and um uh it was it was it was actually admitted to be supposedly a fake story some some years later by the two old ladies that were involved in it but uh they actually said that they did see them and, and what they were doing, photographing these fairies by a little stream with an old uh, camera that required a, a sort of like 10 to 15 second exposure. Uh, but the problem with that was, is that you'd see the river flowing on the long exposure of the camera and it would all be blurry, but the fairy wings in these photos were not fluttering or moving or there's no movement of the fairy being blurry because what they found out later on, that it was stuck in on pins and they were cut out of cardboard and i remember seeing this many many years ago and thinking they didn't look quite right i wanted to believe it but the fairies looked like drawings to me and it turned out they were drawings these two young girls elsie and i can't remember the other lady's name um they were kind of grown up in the 1920s i believe and it was arthur conan doyle who wrote um uh what's his name um, Sherlock Holmes stories. He he was very interested in spiritualism because he lost his own son in the Great War. So he was contacting him through mediums, but he became very interested in this story. And he championed this idea of the cottonly fairies. Uh, but it was 
found out many years later that, that they had actually lied about it. Well, what they did is it was a bit of a thing. They lied about it because uh, they had photographed these things, but they actually claimed they still saw them. But they, they thought that if they told people they saw them and they didn't have any proof, then people wouldn't believe them. So what they did, they faked the evidence that people would believe them. And they said the story just got out of hand. And once people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got involved, these girls just <laughs> shut up. They, they thought, oh, my God, we're out of our depth here. What have we done? You know, they, they really set the cat amongst the pigeons and it was all getting out of control. And it was only when one of the, the, the ladies died in her 90s that the other lady then told the whole story. Yes, we did fake the photographs, but she said she always claimed that one of the photographs was real. Don't know which one it was. I think they took a series of about eight or nine photographs. She always said that one of them was real, but we don't know which one it was. But she said they did actually see them. And there's a background story to that, that there was the Theosophical Society who were involved in that. And he actually, uh, a guy from that society who kind of tuned into fairies and nature, went with them into the fields where they claimed they saw the fairies. And he said that he could tune into them and he described them and things like that. And he said that they were there. So he was kind of like backing up their story. Now, I can't say if that's true or not, but he, he claimed he was backing up the story and, and, and he thought that it was true because I read a separate book about the whole thing from his point of view. So there's two sides to that story. One appears to be fake, but the other seems to have some legitimate of science behind it in some sense. You know, and you hear about this all the time. Uh, you'll hear about it in the uh, Bigfoot uh, community as well. They will fake things because what they did see is they, they actually did see something, but they can't, they didn't get any evidence of it. So they'll fake things because they want to be believed. They want to be uh, justified in what they saw and, and validated. Uh, but unfortunately, it it does the opposite, right? Because then it, they're clear fakes and you can see that. And so the it's it's a challenge in describing something that you've seen with no evidence and then trying to fake it to get more credibility with it. And that happens all the time. I mean, people with UFO phenomena, they do that. Uh, Bigfoots especially. I've definitely heard it happen a lot with that community. And then I, I wouldn't see why this wouldn't be any other way as well. Um, it's an interesting part of the kind of trying to get over explaining something that is so not okay by society and not accepted by society. And so you want proof because that's what everybody says, right? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Uh, and so you fake proof to prove something that really happened that wasn't fake. It's it's a paradox of um, uh, observations, but it, it unfortunately happens quite a bit, man. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't it happen in cases like this as well? Mm, so I... Mm. Uh, We'll probably wrap it up here soon, but uh, tell me tell me one of your favorite stories. You're such a great storyteller in relaying this information, man. I can't wait to get your book, and, and we'll talk about that as well. But uh, if you don't mind, if you've got one more story for us, man, you're, you're yeah, just awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've talked about the fairy beings and things like that, and I've talked about the centaur, uh, or the fawn type of creatures uh, with the guy in the mosque and that. And when I told that story to one of the events that I was attending, uh, and I, I mentioned earlier that people would come up and then relate their stories to me, well, this lady came up and she says, I'm so glad you told that story about the um, th those beings because it confirms that I'm not going nuts. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, when uh, a number of years ago that she had a baby, unfortunately, it died uh, not long after birth. And so she was in the hospital, obviously very, very distraught. She said she was really sad and heartbroken. And they put her in this little private room so she could grieve with the baby. And they put the dead baby in a, in a small cot next to her bed so that she could look at it and kind of try and come to some sort of terms with it in some way. And she said that she sat there crying uh, with this, this, 
the poor dead baby by her in the cot. And she thought, how am I going to be strong for my husband and my family? There's just no way after this traumatic event that I can never be strong again. And while she was crying, she said the door of this room opened up and she said in trotted five or six. She wasn't sure the exact number, five or six small centaur beans. Uh, and they came in and two of them peered over and looked at the baby in the cot. And so they're, they're presumably from her description, they had like lower body of a horse or some kind of beast. We might say it's horse, but we don't know exactly what it is. But their top half was kind of humanoid. But she says they weren't pretty. They were really damn ugly, these things. Uh, so there's no romantic lens looking through the rose tinted spectacles at these things. They were really but ugly. And, and she said then two of them looked at her. And they just kept staring at her and they must have done something. They affected her in some way because she suddenly felt changed in some way, more positive, able to deal with things and much more stronger. Now, she didn't say they went back out of the room or they vanished. She didn't kind of end it in, a, in, in that way. They just weren't there anymore. So I didn't quite understand exactly what happened to them. But they're there for a few minutes and two of them are looking at the corpse, the baby, and a couple of them were looking at her. So they, you know, they might have come in for some sort of healing in some way. It's the only thing I can think of because they, they, they left and she, she had some sort of positive change to her. She didn't run out of the room screaming and that was like the really worst of her days after that. They, they, they somehow lifted her emotions in some way. So, yeah, not all these fairy stories are bad. Some of them seem to end on a happier note and, and it's the butt ugly ones that seem to be the, the healers, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, good for it. Good on them. You know, don't judge yeah. that book by its cover, right? Uh, they're here yeah. to help. That, that's incredible, man. Like I said, you're you're an awesome dude. Uh, we will definitely do this again if you'll if you'll come back Absolutely. on, man. You're you're Absolutely. welcome anytime. Uh, so tell us just a little bit about how to find you, and then we'll wrap this up, man. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm on Facebook as Neil Geddes Ward, N E I L G E double D E S hyphen or dash W A R D. Neil Geddes Ward. Um, and you can tune into our Paranormal Peep Show on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. That can also be viewed on uh, online on YouTube on Neil Peel, N-E-I-L-P-E-E-L, or just type in the Paranormal Peep Show. You should find it. And uh, I do have a website where you can view some of my artwork, uh, which is www.neilgeddesward.com. So it's N-E-I-L-G-E-D-D-E-S w-a-r-d.co.uk not com beg your pardon co.uk and you can have a look at some of the artwork there uh, the book uh, Encounters with Fairies Ghosts and Spirits is not with a publisher at the minute I aim to try and get it to an agent so you know I can't say when it's going to be out but I'm certainly in the closing stages of writing the book and then I'll have to go through and tidy up proofread it and things like that um, so I'm hoping it'll be out sometime later in the summer maybe um, or later this year Perfect. And I will link all of that in the show notes. So you guys just go down below and click on all of that. It'll take you directly to where you can find Neil. Neil, man, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank dude. You. This has been Pleasure. A, a true honor. Thank you. Pleasure to help out. Lovely to be here. And thank you for inviting me. A huge thanks to Neil for coming on the show today. That dude is awesome, right? Uh, go down in the bottom of the show notes and find uh, his links to everywhere that he can be found. And uh, just check this guy out, man. Reach out. Uh, he's really, really interesting. He's got tons of great stories. He uh, does a phenomenal show. So you guys go check out his show, The Paranormal Peep Show, for sure. Uh, big thanks to him again. Um, so also for this show, guys, uh, we can be found at expandingrealitypodcast.com. 
youtube.com. That is where all the links to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the YouTube, the YouTube video of this will be, of course, up on Expanding Reality on YouTube. Uh, that is also where you can find our Patreon if you want to contribute to the show. Keep us going. We always appreciate that. Thank you all so much for your contributions. So, uh, again, uh, awesome dude. So go look Neil up. He's he's fantastic. I love his stories. I love talking to this guy. We will have him back on. And um, for you guys, y'all just go out into the world, pick up a piece of litter, uh, get out of the left-hand lane, do something nice for a stranger. Just be your best you every moment in life as an opportunity for you to reinvent yourself and to create the version of you that you want. So don't miss out on that. Take yourself up on creating yourself. I And overall, guys, just go out into the world and y'all be good to one another. Thank y'all so much for listening. We'll see you next time.